you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to open them up to Psalm 46. Um, I want to think through this idea of though the earth gives way, you are safe. I'm going to pray for us, and then um, Steve has already read our passage this morning, so I won't read it again. We'll just move right into our time in the Word. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we echo the cry of that song. May we uh, long and experience your presence more. It's one thing to know that we are indwelled by your Spirit. It's one thing to know that you will never leave us nor forsake us. But there are times, Lord, when we feel alone and we feel afraid and we feel abandoned. And so, Father, I pray that you, by your spirit, would impress upon our souls that we are loved, that we have tasted of the greatest love in the world. And it's not in food and it's not in homes and it's not in spouses or children. It's in you. I pray, Lord, that you would satisfy us with your goodness, with your face, with your glory, with your presence. As we turn our hearts to your word, would you teach us? Would you comfort our hearts? Again, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So the summer is always a weird time in our home because our rhythm is sort of broken up. Uh, we stay up a little later, uh, and believe it or not, uh, we, I, I don't read uh, much from the newspaper. Uh, my wife and I were talking a couple of days ago. We can't remember the last time we actually sat down to watch the news, and uh, it's just kind of off a little bit. And so when I approached the psalm, uh, I'll be really honest with you, I had a hard time experiencing what the psalmist experiences. And so I did two things. One, I uh, prayed and just asked God to just bless me that I might apply this to my own heart. Uh, but two, that he would do that work on me to uh, allow me to see the goodness of the passage and to experience sort of the emotions that are going on here. And I came across a quote, and it's by a, name, by a man by the name of Derek Kidner. He says, Psalm 46 is written in a robust and defiant tone. This suggests that it was composed at a time of crisis, which makes the author's confidence in the Lord doubly impressive. Until recently, and recently was 1973, many have had very few thoughts about the possibility of some global catastrophe, but this is changing. And I came across that phrase right there, this possibility of a global catastrophe as the backdrop to the psalm. And I just, I, I didn't feel it, right? I feel safe. Like when I get in my car and go home, I don't feel catastrophe. When I get in my house and lock my doors, I don't feel catastrophe. And so on Tuesday, I started to just, all right, go get newspapers. And so I went, I mean, literally, I went every day and got a newspaper I got USA Today and the Wall Street Journal and uh, USA Today and the Clarion Ledger, Ledger and, and you, got, you name it. And, and I started cataloging, like, what's, what's actually happening, right? Not in my corner, of the, my corner of the world, but what are some of the things that are front page of the newspapers? What, what are some things that have happened in our country and world in the, since the last seven days when we saw each other? And here's what, here's what came out, right? The United States is now sending troops to Saudi Arabia after credible and emergent threats to American interests. 
the NYPD will not face federal charges for the death of Eric Garner, an unarmed black man who was choked to death on camera. For-profit prisons that are unsafe and unsanitary, that are failing audits and are understaffed, yet somehow they managed to pay out $1.6 million in bonuses. 30,000 people were without power due to Hurricane Barry. Publicly announced ICE raids put migrants and millions of legal Hispanic citizens on edge. Billionaire Jeffrey Epstein has been charged with gross sexual trafficking. Rising temperatures in our country are breaking record heat indexes. Conditions of border patrol facilities would certainly cause an uproar if dogs were treated that way. Restrictions on religion are rising. Christians are harassed in 143 countries. Pew Research Center said the Middle East and Northern Africa of the five regions studied had the highest level of government-backed restrictions and persecution. The Ebola outbreak in the Congo has been declared a global health emergency. If you are a congresswoman of color, the tweet, go back home where you came from, reminded you once again of racism in our country. U.S.-China trade negotiations are hitting roadblocks. Amazon faces inquiry on the use of your personal information. Russia has already sold $5.7 billion of military hardware to the world. Here's what I noticed. What started on Monday as it's good. The more you read, the more you hear, the more you see, my anxiety increased. That every time I heard this stuff, it made me sad, and it made me angry, and it made me frustrated, and it made me feel hopeless. That's the backdrop of the psalm that the psalmist is writing and there's a lot going on around it. And so I want to look at this passage with, with, under this first heading. And it's the severe turmoil that the psalmist is experiencing. The backdrop to Psalm 46 is trouble. Uh, Derek Kittner just reminded us of that. But, but, but trouble is actually in, in the psalm. He actually speaks of God being a refuge and present help in trouble. And then he starts to paint this picture with, with these beautiful and yet jarring images of the trouble that he sees. And so notice he speaks of the earth giving way and the mountains falling in the sea and the waters are roaring and foaming and the mountains are quaking with surging and the nations and kingdoms are, are, are revolting and kingdoms are tottering. Like, like that's the image when you look at the imagery and just think about it for a minute. Think about seeing a grand mountain that has been a fixture in your landscape when you look outside and now you see this mountain upended and turned over and thrown into the sea. And when it's crashing in the sea, now the waves are roaring and you're afraid that those waves are going to come upon land and swallow you up. That's the image that the psalmist sees. That's the backdrop to the psalm. It's trouble. Now, there's a Hebrew parallelism going on in the passage. 
that, that, that's, that, that I wish was more clear, but I want to show it to you. And here, here it is. What you see the earth doing is what you see nations doing. And what you see happening to the mountains is what you see happening to kingdoms. And it's the same Hebrew word. In other words, put your hand on verse 2. It says the mountains are moving, but in the Hebrew, it's actually they're tottering, right? So, 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 so hold that and then go down to verse 6. It actually says the nations rage and the kingdoms totter. In other words, uh, there, it's a parallelism, right? What he sees might happen to the mountain where it's coming upended and uprooted is what's happening to kingdoms. This is civil unrest, and the same thing is true for the earth. Did you catch the, I mean, for, for waters, and you see it right there where it says in verse 3, though the waters roar and foam, guess what? That's the same word used over there. And verse 6, for the nations roaming and raging. One scholar says, we see here the most violent civil commotions being illustrated by the greatest physical commotions. In other words, he's trying to show us the depth of what he's feeling through the idea of natural disaster. And then he's pointing our hearts to civil discord. It's the backdrop to the song. Conflict and wars and injustice and enemies, nations going to battle. And maybe when they go to battle, the, the, the ships will come upon the sea and it will cause the sea to roar and foam. And maybe those mountains will be filled with soldiers, with weapons and spears and fire in verse 9. And, and it will, this thing that looked rock solid and steady, it's going to have this new look where now it looks destructive. Whatever the backdrop is of Psalm 46, it's not looking good. And this was one of Martin Luther's favorite psalms. During the Protestant Reformation, he would oftentimes tell them in the midst of persecution and calamity, go sing the 46th. And we're going to sing the 46th. A mighty fortress is our God was written around this song. Here's a David Cassidy. He spoke at our General Assembly a couple of weeks. He, he wrote a book. It's called Indispensable. I commend it to you. He says, much pain surrounds us and our world groans under the weight of tremendous injustice. Poverty remains unchecked in much of the world. Weapons of mass destruction may be unleashed. Disease and plague prey on many. The planet is undergoing significant shifts and climate change that affects people and animals of all kinds. Violence fills our streets and screams. Chaos and tragedy befall all. Earthquakes and tsunamis swallow cities. Sexual violence and confusion abound. Christians are being beheaded and crucified by Islamic extremists. Many marriages that lasted for many years are unexpectedly dissolving. Once full churches are emptying out, we see the places that we expected to be shelters in the storm turn into harbors where dangerous men with dark hearts prey on vulnerable children. We have a long road ahead, personally and collectively. 
We have suffering to endure and doubts to overcome, difficult questions to answer, and difficult seasons ahead for whole nations and churches and families. Disease will make its presence felt. Doubts will crowd in. Death will lurk close at hand. Do you feel that sometimes? That's what's behind this song. Have you ever been afraid and lonely? This is in the song. He goes on to say, we live in between the resurrection of Christ and the return of Christ. And we call this the meantime. But if we were really paying attention, it is a very mean time. You ever felt that? That we live between the resurrection and the return of Christ. And it's mean. And it's hard. That's the song. Here's what we see. After you see sort of this idea of severe turmoil, it moves to a surprising hope. That's our second point. Did you notice verse 2? It actually says, though the mountains be moved into the sea, the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Did you catch the beginning of verse 2, though? We will not fear. And I think that, that, that is what you underline and highlight. And here is why it's impressive. It's impressive first because he proclaims that he is not afraid, but it's impressive second because he's proclaiming he's not afraid, though these things may really happen. Though I were to see a mountain uprooted and slung into the sea, though I were to see and experience the waves crashing upon me and taking me out, and though I were to see men and women coming against me in battle, and though this world were turned upside down and it felt like an apocalypse, like something you see in a horror movie, though these things would happen, you know what he says? I will not be afraid. See, that's the beauty in the psalm. The beauty in the psalm is that though calamity and suffering could happen, he proclaims the absence of fear in the midst of it. Here's what it means. It means that when you see this stuff and you read this stuff or this stuff starts to happen to you and it presses in, you don't have to be shaken by what you see. And it's happening all around you. And you can actually not be afraid. Now, if you're like me, I'm like, all right, man, come on. Like, really? Like, for real? Because I know my heart. I, I saw what it did. The more I read, the more it got anxious, the more it got unsettled, the more it got angry. And you're actually telling me the more I see it, I can actually stay unbothered and unafraid? You got to do something with that because the psalmist is saying that, and I feel like we have to respond to that, right? That I don't think this is lip service, and here's why. There's a man by the name of Polycarp. Some of you know him in church history as one of the first martyrs, but he would not worship the, the Roman king, and uh, his proconsul came and says, uh, worship the king, bow the knee, 
And he says, 86 years I served my true king, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme him now? And he says, well, I have wild animals to sick on you, and I will throw you to them if you do not repent. And when he means wild animals, he means like lions, right? And he says, call them. Well, if you despise the animals, then I will have you burned. And he says, you threaten me with fire which burns for an hour and then is extinguished. And you know nothing of the fire of the coming judgment and eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. Why are you waiting? Set me on fire. You hear that? In the face of trouble, I'm unbothered and I'm unmoved. Can you think about the words of Jesus when he is before his killers and they're saying, hey, who are you? Where are you from? I have the power to free you. Jesus says, you have no power. You have power because I gave you power. Do you not know that at any moment I could summon legions of angels and they would come and do war with me? You have no power. You don't take my life. I lay my life down and I will take it up. So let's do this, right? Like, I'm like, no, this is for real. We see it in church history. We see it in the Bible. We can stand up here day after day after day and proclaim to you people who have this kind of confidence, and it's not wishful thinking because they have graves to prove it. So this is not just wishful thinking. Well, 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 well okay, well, 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 maybe I'm like the cowardly lion in The Wizard of Oz. When God was giving out the courage in the courage department, I didn't, I didn't get that much, Pastor Hill. I just got a little bit. Every single thing I read and see and hear, it puts me on edge, right? They are a one in a million. And the norm is that we're like that. And I'm like, no, that's not true either. When you look at Revelation and Revelation chapter 6, you know what it says? It actually says, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they bore. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the full number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. You hear what John is saying? When we see Jesus face to face, there's going to be a corner. And it's the martyr's corner. And it's not going to be one or two people. It's going to be myriads of people who have stood in the face of persecution. And though hell was breaking out, they said, bring it. This is not lip service in this song. This is a real possibility for God's people. Do you believe that you can face the darkest thing that may happen and you will be okay? And you'll be okay. Whatever it is, you'll be okay. And this isn't just for famous people. It's for ordinary people like you and me who won't, don't have Wikipedia pages, 
We don't have thousands and thousands of followers on Instagram or Facebook. We aren't famous. We aren't movement leaders. We're normal people who have the possibility of having an extraordinary hope. If this was real, don't you want it? Don't you want that? Don't you want the assurance that if weapons were deployed, that you're okay? Don't you want the assurance that if the worst doctor's report imaginable came your way, that you're okay? Don't you want the assurance that if whatever happens to you, your life is taken, that you're okay? What this psalmist does is puts before us, this is a real possibility that though the earth will shake and though nations will totter and though your life might be taken, you can actually see that and not be afraid. And so the next logical question is, if it's real and if it's desirable, where, where do I get it from? How do I get it? Where's the source of this hope? That's our third point. Now, to do this, I'm going to play a little game with you. I'm going to activate the other side of your brain. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to look at your Bible and, and look at Psalm 46, and I want you to kind of think through how many times do you see God in it, and I want you to come up with a number, all right? Just God. All right. Anybody want to say a number for me? Just one. Okay, I heard a seven. You might say a five. All right. Now, let's stop there. This is not, this is not to be me. You're wrong. <laughs> Let me just say it that way, right? His name is mentioned more than five times, more than seven times. Now, before I show you this, let me first say that what you never see in this psalm is that the source of his strength is in the military or government or his health or his political party or his money or how they parented or where they went to school or where they live. Did you notice that God didn't ask your permission to put any of that in this psalm? The ultimate source of hope in this song is God himself. And that's why Derek Hittner nails it. He says the ultimate source of our hope is God and not God plus anything else. And here's what I noticed when I felt the most anxiety when reading this. You know why I felt the anxiety? Because deep down inside, I was thinking it's God plus something else. And here's what the psalm says. Your hope is God, period. Now, the reason I said, if you say five or seven, that it's incorrect, is because something beautiful is in the psalm. 
And it's actually kind of rare that in one psalm, you see numerous different names of God. And so if you went through the psalm and you were just looking for G-O-D, you might arrive at five. But if you were looking for G-O-D, God, and Lord, Yahweh, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, and very present help, that's the word Ezer, right? Your very present help, the one that is near, that's another one. And then you see the God of Jacob, right? You, you get that, and, and, and the way it's written, it's written a, as a title. And so you have to look at those three words together. And then you have the Lord of hosts, right? You see that in the psalm as well. And you see Lord of hosts. Uh, you see the most high in verse 4. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitations of the most high. In other words, what you have in this psalm are all of these various titles of the one true God. And here's what Tony Evans says about learning to see the importance of names in the Bible. He says, in Scripture, God reveals himself to us through his names. So to fully grasp the significance and power of God's names, we first need to understand the importance of names in ancient Near Eastern culture. In Old Testament times, a name was more than simply nomenclature. Rather, it revealed important information about the individual or the thing itself. A name is so important in biblical settings that Scripture frequently mentions God himself changing someone's name to reflect a new reality. Abram, which means exalted father, was changed to Abraham, which means father of a multitude. In the book of Hosea, God changed the names of Hosea's son and daughter to signify changes in his relationship with people. They had a, a, a daughter, a son, whose name was Lo-Ami, which means not my people. But the Lord changed his name, and the name was now Ami, which means my people. And Lo-Ruhamah, which means never to be pitied, became Ruhamah, which means Israel will now be shown compassion. Moving into the New Testament, we see Jesus telling Simon, Peter is your name, and it means rock. In Scripture, a name often connotes purpose, authority, makeup, and character. And because of the depth of God's character, he has various names that reflect the many ways he cares for humanity. What does G-O-D mean? It's Elohim in the Hebrew. And it means the creator and the sustainer of all things. It draws our, our attention back to in the beginning, Elohim made heavens and earth. And so when the psalmist talks about the mountains being thrown into the sea and the sea roaring, who does he appeal to? He appeals not to Yahweh. He appeals to Elohim. Why? Because, Yah, I mean, because God was the one who fashioned the sea to begin with. He was the one who told the mountains to rise. And so if the mountains get out of place, and if the sea gets out of place, well, guess who put them in the place to begin with? So he appeals to God. You are creator. And though this earth be turned over and upside down, 
You are the one who created it with your very powerful word. And you are the one, if it were to fall apart, only you can put it back together. And then he moves, right? He moves to verse 4. Notice he talks about, the, the, in the Hebrew, it's El Yon. But in verse 4, he talks about, uh, there is a river whose stream makes glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. It's El Yon, the highest God. And why is El Yon used in the psalm? This is a word, a title, that's used to emphasize his sovereignty. Marcellus prayed it, but he prayed and he talked about Daniel. We, we see um, the Most High use a ton in the book of Daniel. And Daniel actually says he has the everlasting kingdom, that, that what he does no man can thwart. And he calls him the Most High. And what, what is Daniel doing? He's appealing to God's sovereignty. I know we're out of our land and I know we're over here and we're exiled, but you're still sovereign. And the next person to use that phrase of most high was Nebuchadnezzar. And he uses it at a very important scene. He uses it two times in chapter four and five in Daniel. And you remember in Daniel when Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego would not worship Nebuchadnezzar? And you remember when they would not bow to the statue? You remember what he did with them? He put them in the furnace and turned the furnace on blast. And then his homeboy went to go look. And just by looking at it, he kind of got burned up, right? And he noticed that there are not three people in the furnace, but now it's four and I see one as, as if a son of man, and he turns the furnace down, and these three boys, these three men, they get out of the furnace, and they're alive. And what does Nebuchadnezzar say? He says, who is your God? If anybody touches the God of, uh, of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the most high, then let them be torn asunder. And God is like, brother, I don't need you to protect my name. Didn't you just see me protect my own name down here? You think you're going to burn them up, but because I'm the most high and sovereign one, it's not their day to die. And it's nothing you can do to make them die. It's his sovereignty. You see it again when, when Nebuchadnezzar starts to have these dreams. And in this dream, right, Daniel interprets it. Daniel tells him, oh, king, you're prideful and, you're, and, and, and it's not going to go well with you. You're going to lose your mind. And, the, and Nebuchadnezzar looks out and he, is, he just grows prideful. And the Lord struck him right then and took his mind. He became as a wild animal. And he tarried there for a season until the Lord says, okay, now. And when his mind was restored, you know what he called the Lord? He didn't call him G-O-D. He didn't call him Yahweh. He called him Elyon, the most high God, the sovereign one who was even over my mental fortitude and capacity. And did you notice what the psalmist says? There is a river that flows from the city of God and the holy habitation of the Most High, how do you see sovereignty in here? I'll tell you. It's the image of God living in his own glorious city. And he dwells in inapproachable light. But there is a river that flows from it, from his city, 
down here to where his people are, and it makes them glad. What makes them glad? It's not the literal water. It's the reality that sovereignty flows from his throne. But that's not it. The Lord of hosts, look at it in verse 7. The Lord of hosts is with us. That's Yahweh Sabaoth, right? And it's the Lord of war. He's our warring king. It's used in 1 Samuel. When Hannah can't have a baby, she does not pray to G-O-D. She prays to the Lord of hosts. And here's what happens. He goes to war and he goes inside and he makes her fruitful. The next time you see it is when, Dan, when David is about to fight Goliath. And David is about to get crushed because this big giant is coming. And David's plea is, you fight us with that, but we have the Lord of hosts on our side. He is our warring king, and today we will have your head do not make the mistake that, da that, that David, that the story is about David. It's not about David. It's about Elohim, God, using a minuscule pebble and a minuscule boy and a minuscule slingshot to take down this giant because he is the Lord of hosts and there is no giant too big for him. And so David appeals to our warring king. He is the one who got deliverance that day. It's the Lord of hosts. And remember in Isaiah 6, who did Isaiah say he was afraid of when he saw? I'm a man of unclean hands and unclean lips, and I dwell amongst people who are unclean, and my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Why was he afraid of seeing the Lord of hosts? Because he knew what that meant. He comes with a holy sword to do war. That's why Isaiah is afraid. And you see Yahweh in verse 8, capital L-O-R-D, he is who he is, he does what he pleases, and he is faithful to his own name. Tony Evans says, God has a name for every situation we find ourselves in. We need to learn the names of God because when we know his character and capacity, we will find rest and discover peace and power in his covenantal care for us. And so what do you do when you see a psalm like this? When all of these names of God are on display, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take those names and you write out your own sentence, your own prayer to help you when you feel on edge. And here is what my prayer would sound like. Father, your Elohim. You created everything seen and unseen. And you, by your son, you hold everything together by your word and your mind. And there is nothing in creation that can harm me unless you say, O oh, sovereign one, 
the most high God. And if you choose to use suffering, then I trust your sovereign plan and not what I think I need right now. And you are my warring king. You have fought for me in Jesus Christ, and I am yours now and forever, and you will never, ever, ever let me go. And even though they kill the body, they cannot take the soul. My soul is yours, and my eternity is sealed because there is no one else higher than you, and you are the one who is an ever-present help in time of trouble, and you are here with me, and you're Yahweh. You're faithful to your own name. You will not abandon your people. And so, Father, even though I feel dismayed and I feel uncomfortable and I feel afraid, I will let you and your glory shape how I feel and live in this moment. That's how you take and make a sentence and a prayer using the attributes of God in times of trouble so that you don't have to be afraid. You don't have to. Last point is how do we cultivate this skill of hope? I think hope is a blessing that is ours in Jesus. It's a gift, but I also believe it's a skill that we can cultivate and strengthen. And we do this by faith. And I think this psalm helps us. How do we cultivate the skill? If you, were, if you were an athlete and you were trying to improve your free throw percentage, how would you improve that skill? How would you get the muscle memory? You would go to some gym and you would shoot and shoot and you would strengthen that muscle. You would strengthen that wrist. You would strengthen hand-eye coordination. You nail down muscle memory. You nail down form. In other words, you will work on the technique to develop it. Do you believe that hope can be cultivated? And the psalmist says, yes. Did you notice the one time that God speaks in the psalm? And you'll see two parentheses. You know where it is? It's right there down in verse 10. And the backdrop of this is chaos. You know what God says when he speaks? He says, be still and know that I'm God. If we're going to cultivate hope, it begins with stillness and not franticness. It begins with not talking. And sitting before your God and King. You see the word Selah in this psalm three times. And you see it, right? You see it in verse, at the end of, of, of verse 3. You see it at the end of verse 7. You see it at the end of verse 7. What does Selah mean? We think it means sit on that for a minute and marinate on it, right? That's my translation, right? We think it means just let, let this wash over you. You read these three verses, Selah, take a pause, take a break, take it in. So you have this implicit and explicit reference to stillness. He says, I know you're frantic. I know you're worried. But sometimes the best thing you can do is to go sit in your chair 
and be still before your God. And that feels so unproductive that if you're like me, like I'm frantic and I'm running and I'm reading and I'm doing all this stuff and God is saying, be still, just stop. We saw this in Exodus when Israel were, were, were led, out of, led out of Egypt and they got to the sea and they looked behind them and the warriors and soldiers are coming. They looked in front of them and they saw the sea and they were panicking. And you know what God told them? Moses, tell them to be still. Tell them to be still and to be quiet. They're about to see my glory. Do you believe that that is what God is up to? That in the stillness of your table or your couch or your car, that your help comes when we take the time to just pull away. You also see it through this idea of being, him being the God of Jacob. I think he wants us to contemplate our new identity in Jesus. Names matter in this psalm. Did you notice that twice it's referred to God of Jacob? Why didn't he say God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? God of Abraham? Why Jacob? Do you know what Jacob means? It means a trickster, one who reaches. That, that Jacob was a twin. Esau and Jacob, uh, Esau and Jacob were, were born, and he's a trickster. He was the second born, but he was, when he was born, his hand was grabbing onto his brother's heel. Why? Because we later know he wants the birthright. He wants to be the firstborn, and so he spends all of his life reaching. And so by the time his father's about to die, he is still reaching where he tricks his father in giving him the firstborn blessing. And Tim Keller writes about this. Jacob is a reacher. He's been reaching his whole life to try to find something that will bring him satisfaction and stability. And he thinks that by reaching and becoming the firstborn that he'll have it all. And it's not until God reaches down and saves him by his grace and changes his name to Israel that he finally gets it. Do you believe that that's a picture of you and me? We're reachers by nature. In the face of this stuff, we reach to stuff that we think will make us safe, that we think will protect us. We're reachers by nature. And here is the good news of the gospel. God has said, I don't want you to reach. I'm going to reach you. I'm going to send my son for all of your reaching, and he will go to a cross for all of your idolatry, all of the ways that we think a president, the military, our money, where we go to school, what we drive, our physical fitness, all these things that we trust in that we think will bring us security. God says it's idolatry. I'm your hope. I'm your one true hope. It is not me plus whatever else you add to it. It's me, period. And because you have profaned me by all of your reaching, I'm going to reach down to you and send my son who is not a reacher. He's going to trust me. And then he's going to go to a cross and die for your reaching that I might cover you with my grace and give you a name change. You are not a reacher anymore. You are in his son. And if you're in his son, then you are safe. And this is the God who is not afraid to be called the God of reachers.
I will be your fortress. He says, sit down and you meditate on that. And then he moves towards remembering his promises. Look at verse 10. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted. Why does he have to say it twice so that we would remember? Look at verse 8. Come and behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth, how he makes wars to cease to the end of the earth, how he breaks bow and shatters and spears, how he burns the chariots with fire. In other words, the psalmist is rehearsing God's faithfulness. He ends wars. Right. He does this. He can take whatever people try to do and bring an end to it. And he is ending war for all times when all of our weapons will be beaten into plowshares in the new heavens and the new earth. And there is no war. There is no calamity. There is no murder. There is only worship and enjoyment of Jesus forever. And so the psalmist is saying, remember this. Your God is on the throne. He is in the business of turning all of this around. Remember it. And then he talks about experiencing his presence. It says he is our ever-present help in time of need. Look at verse 5. In the city of God, God is in the midst of her, and she will not be moved. Verse 7. The Lord of hosts is with us. The Lord of hosts is with us. Do you believe that, what we just sang? His presence. As you and I practice silence and meditate upon his promises and remember who we are in Jesus and long for his presence. He is with you. The Holy Spirit lives within you. You're sealed, signed, sealed, and delivered. He is yours. And you have a new home, the city of God. Do you believe your Savior has gone to prepare a place for you? And there is no weeping, and there is no sorrow, and there is no sadness, and there is no death, and there is no king but Christ. And we will worship him and enjoy him forever, and we will be glad and satisfied. Do you believe the real city of God is not on this earth? It's the new Jerusalem being kept and guarded for us. And one day he will usher in the new heavens and the new earth. And that's why Paul says, if you're a Christian, your life is hidden with Christ. And you know what that means? You live in two places. You live here, but you have residence there. And one day the there will come and take place of what's right now, and we will know and enjoy him forever. The psalm says, practice this. Cultivate that muscle. And so, I'm going to close with this. Carl Barth says, take your Bible and take your newspaper. And he says, read them both. Mike Ross used to always say, exegete the Bible and exegete the culture and exegete the times. But here is what Carl Barth says. Take your Bible and take your newspaper and you read them. And he says, you interpret your newspaper through this Bible. That's the key. You interpret this through this and not apart from this. 
If you remove this and who God is and who Jesus is, you're going to be anxious and frustrated and fearful. But when you see this king on that throne who loves you, who is sovereign and faithful, you can read this and not be afraid. Let's pray. Father, we love you. Pray that you would add your blessing to your word. Amen.